This is Mike Quinlan, and you are listening to the Business Owner Transition Podcast. There is one constant in business, and that is that every one of us will eventually exit, and sometimes sooner than we think. In this podcast, we discuss topics to help you with elite preparation, so when you're ready for transition, you won't just exit, you will join that exclusive group of owners who have accomplished an elite exit. We talk with former owners, exit advisors, and a host of other experts to help you increase the value of your exit, execute it on your terms, and most importantly, do it without regret. So let's join the show. Hi, everybody. It's Mike Quinlan back with you on the Business Owner Transition Podcast. And today I've got Rob Swartwood with me. Rob is the managing member of Concilium Legal Services, and you can reach Rob at conciliumls.com. Rob's a good guy. He's a faculty member here with Business Owner Transition Academy. Rob and I have done several transactions together. He has got a great background. He was a uh, Army Ranger and now a business attorney. And Rob, my very first question for you is, how did you make that jump? Very carefully. Uh, it was somewhat accidental. I thought I would do a career in the military. But um, after sh- having served several overseas tours, I decided uh, I'd like to do something a little safer. So I started practicing law. Uh, wouldn't say that it's uh, incredibly safer, but it's uh, the, the hand grenades they allow me these days are just verbal uh, and, and, and not for real. But um yeah, it, it, it was a it was a big transition, um, but I, I haven't regretted it. Uh, that was 16 years ago, and uh, we've we've enjoyed every minute of it since. Yeah, that's very cool. I, people ask me the same question all the time, and they they say, "How do you how did you do that?" And I said, "Well, you know, one of the great things about doing what I do now is that I'm not flying at 200 feet over the North Atlantic Ocean and not having anybody right. shoot at me. So that's a good that's thing. Right. I can relate." Yeah, I know you can. Um, jumping out of planes back in the old days was probably a little more uh, exciting <laughs> than maybe what you're doing right now. Huh? Sometimes. <laughs> All right. So got to ask you this question. All that stuff that you learned in the Army, how did it prepare you or did it prepare you for anything you're doing today? Uh yeah, it did. Uh, obviously, being in the military, you learn how to do difficult things. You learn how to push yourself. You learn courage. Uh, you learn um, how to develop your character and and how to lead others through difficult circumstances. And as you know, being a deal guy yourself, um, you know, a lot of what we do it, it has a lot of technical and mechanical aspects to it. But um, really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're walking with other folks. We're leading them through something challenging and difficult to help them achieve their objectives and, and arrive at a desired outcome. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mission, no different than a mission that you might've flown in the military or I might've had in the military. Um, it's different. Uh, it's a little bit softer, uh, but it, it feels no less harrowing in some cases, particularly when someone is um, preparing their life's work to transition it to, to somebody else. Um, so there's a lot of parallels. Um, for me, but those are, those are some that just pop off the top of my head. Well, I think the first deal that we did together, the owner, 
his his uh, nickname for you was Ranger Rob. So he always would call <laughs> me up and say, "Hey, Ranger Rob said we have to do this." So, right. Yeah. Right. So hey, all right. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to talk about some you know kind of uh, big deals, little deals. What the typical small business owner may have to go through and the challenges that you may have, that you just alluded to and how they may impact that person as they're trying to really achieve that elite exit. So the first question I have for you is I know you've done billion dollar deals and I've known you've done some really small deals, but are there any, is there anything that is similar between doing a billion dollar deal and doing a $5 million deal, for example? Yeah. Um, mechanically, uh, the, the process is very, uh, very similar. Um, uh, I, I would say that the number of zeros oftentimes uh, has a different emotional impact, but someone selling their business for $5 million versus somebody selling their business for $50 million, it, it's going to feel the same uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm fond of telling folks, and you know this to be true, that Deals are certainly financial and operational, uh, but they are more emotional than most people believe. And I think that's the that's the constant that um, that you see, regardless of if it's a billion dollar transaction and there's 40 lawyers on each side trying to get a deal done and uh, uh, under under cr crazy circumstances, or you know, you have a family-owned business that's operated for thirty or forty years and it's being transitioned to an outside acquirer. Um, obviously, when you when you talk about the actual mechanics of a deal, it's documented very similarly. Whether there's you know, seven zeros behind the number, or if there's you know only only four or five. Um, we, we tend to follow the same process. We tend to apply the same mindset. Um, the smaller the, the deals, you, you can run into a little more friction depending upon the sophistication of the parties and the quality of the advisors uh, that they bring to the table. So I, I will draw a point of distinction uh, there. It's you know, larger deals are, are not typically short on advisors and, and then oftentimes there there might be too many advisors um, on the on the smaller deal side because entrepreneurs are so good at building businesses cutting costs and wearing a lot of different hats you might see those parties come to the table with with less counsel and less advice than than you'd see with some of the larger transactions yeah well you know that we talk about the success formula all the time and success is equal to process times vision times desire and vision in that equation is where the emotion resides and consequently vision is actually the the area of the formula that most deals die in because it has so emo as much emotion associated with the elements of vision on a on an owner and what he's going to do or she's going to do during the transaction and after the transaction. So I agree with you 100%. So let's talk a little bit about, about you meet a new business owner, they come to you and what are some of the questions that you might ask them at the very beginning of your, your very first meeting? It, it really depends on what they've, what they've come for. Um, 
you know, the, the preferred client is a client that is thinking about selling their business at some point in the future, maybe doesn't have a, a, a date certain, but is in the process of preparing the business for sale and knows that they need to build a team around them. And the deal lawyer is just one of one of the team members. Um, I'd love to tell you that that's that's common, uh, though, it, though it does happen. And that's certainly what we're all about with the Owners Academy. Um, it can oftentimes be the case that someone shows up on the other end of the spectrum and says, hey, I just got an LOI uh, to buy my business. <laughs> I, I hope they haven't signed it, um, but sometimes they have. And, and they say, I just need someone to close my deal. So we've got two very different extremes here. Uh, the, the buyer, excuse me, the seller that um, is preparing for an exit and the seller who has had an exit thrust upon them. And the approach that you take with those different kinds of clients, uh, with, with those different clients, I guess, is, 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 is very different. Um, with the folks that are looking to prepare their company for sale it's a much it's a much softer introduction. You want to get to know them. You want to understand their business. You want to understand the rest of the advisory team. You want to understand their broader objectives. You want to ask basic questions like, "Have you got an evaluation? Um, who's your who's your financial advisor? Who's your who's your accountant?" You want to start gathering some of the the details that on the periphery, uh, you know, will come together to form the the, the I'm good checklist. Um, Somebody that shows up with, with an LOI, hopefully an unsigned LOI, um, it's, it's much different. Um, there's not much of a honeymoon phase in the relationship. Uh, my job is to build trust quickly and to ask a lot of uh, very important questions, uh, particularly along the lines of what have you done to prepare your company for sale? What buyers have you considered? What offers have you received? Have you gotten evaluation? I do ask about the other advisors. That's an important part of the equation. But I'm, I'm really trying to gather a lot of data quickly to understand just how ready the owner is to go through the experience that they're about to go through. Um, I think you've probably heard me say this before, but running your company and selling your company is the equivalent of two full-time jobs. But running your company, selling your company, learning how to sell your company, and preparing your company for sale uh, is more than most people can handle. And to the extent that we can, we can minimize the, the number of hats that the business owner is wearing during their transition, I think the, the better. So, uh, but with that said, I mean, we deal with folks across the spectrum, uh, and, and we do, you know, a fair number of deals with folks that that haven't put a lot of time in preparation into preparing the company or themselves. They're not really sure about the sales process. They know it involves a lawyer. They know they need help with contracting. And, and most of them are wise enough to know they shouldn't be signing anything without having someone review it. Um, but that's that's kind of the, the cliff notes of what we might ask in an initial engagement, depending upon where the, where the client is and how they're coming to us. Okay. So here's a, uh, here is a question that that I ask pretty much everybody that is dealing with business owners. And that question is, so when they come to you like that, are they really ready? Or do you find most of them have things buttoned up or do they have a lot of work that they need to do? Every, every business has 
problems. <laughs> My business has problems. Your business has problems, right? We're we're not we're not so. Uh, we 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 believe in what we sell, so we we know that to be the case. Um, I think every business owner comes to the table believing that they are ready to transact, which is which is why they've they've entertained the idea of entering a process or they they're entertaining offers. I think what the what the process does, regardless of whether you've just gotten an LOI or whether you're building a team in the early stages of figuring out what exit planning even looks like, I think what the process does is it helps reveal and expose areas in the business that are important to the buyer and therein important to the seller because what you and I are all about is maximizing, securing, and, and liquidating transferable value, right? If we can't do that for our clients at the end of the day, then, you know, we feel like we haven't served them well. Um, so I think everybody comes to the table genuinely believing I'm ready to do this, but not really knowing what ready means. And I think that's a fair way to, to respond to your question. And they, and they wouldn't. If you don't do this every day, you wouldn't know how ready you are or aren't. You, you, you would just know that you're ready, probably emotionally, maybe financially, or uh, you know, just from a time perspective. But, but, but I think that's it's a little unfair to assume that most business owners would be able to be able to pinpoint that with accuracy. Yeah. And, and they shouldn't be able to, because right. they're really good at doing whatever it is that they do, whatever widget they're making or service they're providing. They're not in the business that we are all in. And that's actually part of the, the business owner transition Academy. The educational piece of what we do is really designed to create awareness for these owners so that they know some, they know what to expect when they start their preparations and then go into the sales process. They also know not to sign that LOI when it comes across their desk, that unsolicited offer. And I would bet that if I asked for a show of hands of all the listeners out there that, that everybody's sitting in their house right now or sitting in their car listening to this and raising their hands and I got one of those because yep. those things are flying around like crazy. That's right. um, so one of the things that I know you do, and it's a service that you offer, is a pre-sale due diligence offering. Tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's so important. Well, um, in, in all candor, one of the more painful aspects of selling your company, and it's a very exciting time, uh, but it's a very risky proposition. Uh, particularly for a buyer, particularly for, let's just say, a private equity acquirer, a financial acquirer. Uh, the, the, the name of the deal for, uh, for, for buyers is to understand and minimize their risk. And the only way that they can do that is to, to come through the seller, the seller's financial information, legal documentation, contracts of all kinds, uh, employee lists, customer List, uh, you know, pretty much every stone that exists inside of a business, even the ones that most sellers don't think are all that important, a buyer will come in and, and look under. Um, obviously, we as lawyers, we don't touch every single one of those pieces, but we do handle the legal piece. We have found that uh, a, a seller that has gone through their company, that has received the due diligence checklist that looks a lot like what the 
buyer's lawyer is going to present to the seller after an LOI is signed. If you are receiving that document for the first time after an LOI is signed, you're going to be shocked. It's a, it's a voluminous document. It contains a lot of requests for information, some of which are applicable, some of which are not. And my experience is what most sellers experience at that point is some level of panic, uh, particularly if they've not done a very good job of locating all of their records, digitizing them, making sure that they're complete with all their pages and all their signatures, and then storing them in a in a an electronic repository where they are easily uh, accessed and, and shared. Um, if if the seller has put no time into preparing information that's ultimately going to be shared with a buyer, we're back into this world of preparing your company for sale while you're trying to sell it. And the sad part about that is that becomes a very stressful part of the part of the transaction. You've just signed an LOI. Buyer's going to buyer is ready to dig their teeth. Buyer and its advisors are ready to dig their teeth into your data. They they hit you with this big list. And then typically there's a flurry of internal activity for two to three weeks while everybody tries to locate all the stuff that's responsive to what's being requested, get it packaged up, get it uploaded to an electronic data room and hope that you know what you've actually just disclosed. The sell side due diligence process, or sometimes we call it a defensive due diligence process, is intended to take the stress out of that exercise. Everybody's going to, everybody who wants to exit and sell their company is going to go through due diligence. So what we recommend is this: if if you know you're going to sell your company, that's an easy process to go through now without there being a buyer present. But we can work with you like a buyer would. This, the, the checklist that I would offer to my clients is very similar to the checklist that a buyer's attorney would offer their clients. And exercising the muscles and exercising your team and exercising your, your memory and, and uh, exercising your systems to locate that information, know what it says, ensure that it's complete. And, 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 and even better, you know, Oftentimes we'll find that there's there's a gap in information or there's some information maybe that we need to disclose that we really are afraid to disclose to the other side because we're not incredibly proud of the fact that we've got a bunch of uh, loss claims on our insurance policies, for example. Some, some industries that's very common and it's just part of the deal and you've got to disclose it. If we know what the issues are inside of a company before a buyer shows up, not only can we prepare the information that needs to be disclosed, but we can prepare the narrative by which it needs to be shared. And, and again, we're in the business of mitigating risk. When we have the ability to tell the buyer, not only, not only it, here's the information that you're looking for, uh, but, but here's also the story that goes with that information. So you're not considering it in a vacuum. We've, we've given you uh, our take on what you're about to see so that when you see it, you've already learned in your mind, we're not hiding anything. Uh, we're not letting you form your own opinion or impression. We're telling you what you need to think about what we're offering you before you have an opportunity to, to develop an opinion yourself. And that's incredibly powerful. 
and very helpful because what it shows is this. It shows this bot, this seller is ready and this seller has my best interest at heart. And that's what every buyer is afraid of is that the seller has only been about the seller and the seller is not thinking about the risk that a buyer might uh, step into when they acquire the business. So uh, that's a that's a broad, broad overview of defensive due diligence, uh, but it, it can be a very helpful exercise in preparation for sale. Yeah, no, it's really good stuff. And I have just a couple of comments there. One is speed is good. So if you have completed pre-sale due diligence okay. and you can provide all of this information with confidence to the buyer and do it quickly, yeah. then you have just shortened your time to close dramatically. That's right. Um, the second thing I would say is that uh, you, as Rob said, control the narrative. Um, there is a whole nother section of conversation around reps and warranties and all that kind of stuff where, uh, you know, guess what? If you don't disclose some of this stuff, uh, it's not good. And, and Rob may talk about that later. Or we may do that on a different podcast. But um, the other thing, too, is that, as Rob said, these buyers are looking to get rid of as much uncertainty as possible. It's about de-risking the future cash flows of the company that they're buying. And the more and more uncertainty that you induce as a seller through the actual um, sales process, you're going to start getting dinged on value. The, right. the buyer is going to want to start ding yet, or they're going to want to change the terms so that they're more protected. So being prepared, uh, it's going to cost you a little money. I mean, Rob's not going to do this for free. Uh, it's, it, costs it is a check that is well worth writing so at any rate it'll come back to you times over so the last question i'll ha ask you on this particular topic is who controls the data and the data warehouse do you want the buyer to be in control of that or i know that the sellers oftentimes will set that up yeah i'm, I'm sorry i say that the other way around that you, we want the the seller to control that data not the buyer right that's right um it is not uncommon for a buyer to come along and say here's our loi read it over let us know if you know you're okay with it otherwise sign it and we'll set up this virtual data room for you to dump all of your company information in as soon as we get this LOI signed. And when you hear that as a as a seller, you think, oh, okay, well, yeah, you know, I've got to gotta put my information somewhere so that they can look at it. Uh, and they've been kind enough to uh, go out and host a, a website that at which we can we can do our due diligence. Um, I, that is a trap for the unwary. Um, my preference, and, and my preference is to state this even in the LOI is that um, the seller will set up their own data room. Uh, if it's an auction or a competitive process, this is a given. You're gonna be engaging with a, uh, an m and advisor, an investment banker, a business broker of some sort, and there's gonna be a pre-populated data room that you will have established with your m and advisor and your legal team as part of the, the auction process. Even in an unsolicited offer context though, you don't have to use the buyer's data room just because they want you to. Uh, I, I always just ask my clients to ask, just state a preference. It doesn't hurt to say, you know, I'd really prefer to host my own data room. If you're okay with it, I'll take care of it. I'll administer the data room. We'll get all your folks added to it. 
And I've, I, I've got a couple clients right now going through this process and they both were successful at the LOI stage getting getting control of the data room. And what I've told them is this, and this is a great point. Um, what they now have is the ability to control information. Now, these particular uh, clients do not have any other buyers in the mix, okay? You and I know that when it's a, when it's a, a, a one-horse show, that buyers will uh, use every bit of leverage that they can. And one of the ways that a seller can exercise leverage over a buyer, particularly when they don't have a lot of leverage because it's not a competitive process, is to control the information flow. So within your data room, you can hide files. If you get to a place in negotiations where you don't think things are headed in the right direction and you need to put things on ice for a day or two, you can close the data room down. And you don't let their accountants in. You don't let their uh, M&A guys in. You don't let their lawyers in. That sends a very strong message. We're not happy. This isn't going in the direction in which we want it to go. And we're serious. We want to talk about this. We want to get a deal done, but we need you to understand that we're working seriously. So it's a, it's a, it's a small point. It's a small expense, but it's, a, it's a, an opportunity to not only control your information and safeguard it and keep it uh, in a place that you're comfortable with, but it's a way to maybe exert some, some leverage over the buyer in a set of circumstances in which you might not have a lot. Yeah, I, I think there's also some practical application here in that if you if you have already done this pre-sale due diligence, you have collected all these documents, you have them filed and sorted in a way sure. that you can access them. And oh, guess what? When you're selling your company, you're going to have some very sensitive information, customer lists, intellectual property, all of these kind of things that maybe you want to control the timing of releasing that information as you're doing the negotiation, correct? That's right. Yeah. And we can do a lot of creative things with that, of course. We can time it properly. We can redact it. We can create the narrative. Um, yes, everything you said is, is true. Okay. So now let's just talk for a minute about the normal process that you might see. So a let's talk first about a owner that has prepared their company. They've got M&A representation, representation and they're going to go to market. So what is the legal interaction and how do you get involved? Just kind of take it, walk us through the steps of the transaction. Sure. Well, if, if there's an M&A advisor involved, we, we will have done some, some pre-sale legal due diligence. We would have, we will have uploaded files to the data room. There will have been engagement with the legal team at, at that point, most likely. Um, M&A advisors vary. Some M&A advisors like to have a first draft of a purchase agreement and maybe even disclosure schedules in the data room ready to go before they circulate the teaser, before they issue their books, so that as soon as the books are issued and they start granting people access to the data room, some of those interested parties can start to get a flavor of what's going to be in the purchase agreement so they can start seeing that. It might be that, that particular step, the disclosure of the purchase agreement itself or the, uh, or the dis disclosure schedules might be pushed to a later stage or a later round when you've maybe narrowed down your initial uh, your initial interested parties to a smaller group. 
uh, maybe four or five. But somewhere in that process, while the M&A, most M&A advisors, one of the first questions they're going to ask when they take on the new engagement is, who is your attorney? And, and I think while they are building the book, the, the, the client is typically engaging their attorney in, in tandem. And if they don't have one, a, a deal attorney is, uh, is, is being found for them, right? And it's very common as you know, for folks to say, well, yeah, you know, Tom is, Tom is our attorney. He's represented us in litigation for you know, the last 20 years, or, you know, Bill did my divorce, or, you know, Sarah is our trust and estates attorney. She's set up these wonderful trusts and, you know, our family's done great. What we're talking about though is, is a deal attorney, somebody that does just deals every day, all day. And that's what the M&A advisor is likely going to ask about that's what the M&A advisor is going to push the client to, to hire. So there is a formal engagement process that happens at the early stages of an M&A, um, M&A advisor's engagement. We, we will likely come in and, and have a, an initial meeting with the M&A advisor to determine who's, who's going to um, offer a draft of the confidentiality agreement. Some M&A advisors have a form that they like to use. They'll ask the lawyer to look at it. Sometimes the lawyer says, We've got a form we like our clients to use. If the M&A advisor's not partial to, to their form, then the M&A advisor will say, sure, we'll use your confidentiality agreement. The M&A advisor will also ask the attorney to look over the book and make sure that the disclosures uh, and the disclaimers that are contained inside the book uh, properly disclaim any liability for circulation of the book, right? We're we're, we're in a sales process here, but we're also in a disclosure process. And there's securities laws and all kinds of different things that are being implicated. Uh, obviously, the disclosure of, of a book to an interested party is not going to happen until that party has signed a confidentiality agreement. Mike, I've done deals, and believe this or not, there are attorneys out there, and it is, it is their job to do nothing but negotiate NDAs because there there might be 50 interested parties who are going to receive a copy of the book. Now, if I'm representing the seller, I hope it's not 50 interested parties. Uh, that's a pretty broad swath, but I've, I've seen 30, I've seen 35, and every single one of it, particularly if it's a private equity acquirer, every single one of those Wall Street law firms are going to have their Wall Street lawyers, excuse me, those Wall Street private equity firms are going to have their Wall Street lawyers look those NDAs over. They don't just sign them. They negotiate every single one of them. So, you know, it really does depend upon who you're trying to sell to, the kind of process you're running. But those are some of the initial stages of what a lawyer will do in a, in a structured auction or a structured process that an M&A advisor is working on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, you, glad you brought up the negotiation, the NDA, because people don't ever think about that. And I can tell you from experience that 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 is something that can be painful and, and, and go through multiple iterations and and something that can also put some roadblocks on or or cause some delay in information flow because you know some of these big corporations that are out there that might be acquiring a small company they they're not going to change their NDA <laughs> or it's going to be difficult to get them to do that that's right and if, if you'll permit me just one footnote sure. here, I, uh, I, I, had a, I had a conversation even with a prospective client yesterday about this point. It is very common for the auction here, but the seller who receives an unsolicited offer 
typically they don't engage a lawyer until the LOI. And hopefully they engage the lawyer before the LOI has been signed. One of the first questions I'll ask when they present me with the LOI is, did you sign a confidentiality agreement with the buyer? And if so, can you provide me with a copy? It's very common that the buyer is the one who drafted the confidentiality agreement that, that the seller signed prior to the seller disclosing their financial information so that an LOI could be produced. Nine times out of 10, that LOI is incomplete. Uh, excuse me, the, the NDA is incomplete. And one of the things that we'll do when we negotiate the LOI is we will amend the confidentiality agreement to add the remaining protections that the buyer should have put into the confidentiality agreement before the seller signed it. So just a footnote there, uh, you know, my preference is that folks don't sign anything with uh, folks on the other side. It costs $500 to get my form confidentiality agreement. Call me up, say, I don't even know if I want to hire you, but I'd like to buy your, your document. Uh, I'd be happy to you know, offer that to you. And, uh, and it could save you a lot of pain and hassle, particularly if the deal goes bust after you've disclosed your financial information. Yeah, so I had a, somebody call me today about helping them. You know, they've already signed a LOI and wanted us to step in and help with, with taking them to the closing table. And the very first question I asked them is, who's your attorney? And let me see your, your LOI and, and has your attorney seen it yet? So um, I'm a big believer in what you're doing there, Rob. You keep people out of trouble. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm behind you there 100%. Um, all right. So we've done all this prep work. Now we get the LOI. Uh, what are some of the gotchas that, that you typically see or some of the most important parts of the LOI? And for those that are listening, LOI stands for letter of intent. Mm -hmm. uh, you may also hear this as uh, informally as a term sheet, but letter of intent is kind of what we're using today, the LOI. And there's a lot of business terms in there but from a legal perspective, Rob, what what do you see in uh, as as being typical issues with LOIs? The first thing that I'm going to focus on when I look at an LOI is the purchase price, how it was determined, and how it will be paid. If we can't get past the purchase price, how it was determined, and how it's going to be paid, we we don't have a deal. Um, a lot of LOIs will contain language that very generically captures financial terms. In a, in, a, in a seller looking at those generic financial terms might say, well, sure, it makes sense that um, you valued my company on the basis of adjusted EBITDA and you valued it at $15 million and you're gonna pay me uh, three, $13 million at, at, at closing and you're gonna pay me a million dollar earn out each of the two years following the transaction, also on the basis of uh, how well the company has performed on an adjusted EBITDA basis, but there will be no definition within the LOI of what adjusted EBITDA is. Uh, I've got a I've got a transaction right now in which you know that's that's kind of an issue where we're 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 in the early stages, and the buyer says, "Well, we need to do our buy side POV to tell you what the company is worth, 
to validate the offer that we've made. And I said, well, they kind of know what the company's worth because they did the back of the envelope valuation in order to determine the purchase price. So they should just tell us how they determined it. So if they change it later, we know. Um, so what I'm looking for is in an LOI globally is this. Did someone put together a thoughtful document that that touches on each of the material terms that we're ultimately going to have to document in a purchase agreement and ancillary agreements in a transaction? It's not uncommon for there to be employment agreements. It's not uncommon for there to be lease agreements. It's not uncommon for uh, a seller to maybe be holding back some assets from the sale. Perhaps there's a division of the, the seller that the buyer does not want to acquire. The seller's gonna keep that division and continue to operate it, but there's no reference in the LOI that there are assets, material assets that are being excluded from the transaction. Working capital is something that's near and dear to our hearts, as you know, because um, working capital is, is real money to the people who are fighting over it once an LOI is signed and the buyer completes its financial due diligence. Um, how working capital is going to be determined if there's not a calculation or a methodology spelled out in the LOI is really important. We can't just say that, hey, the business is gonna have uh, a normalized amount of working capital as of, as of closing and the purchase price assumes that. Well, how does it assume that? And how are we gonna measure it? Is it gonna be a trailing 12 analysis? And if so, what is the measurement period going to be? Is it gonna be from last January 1st to December 20, uh, 31st or is it gonna be a different measurement period? Just by adding some additional detail to the purchase agreement, or excuse me, where the, the letter of intent, where it might be light on detail, helps shape the deal. And that's really what we're looking for an LOI to do. You can't get bogged down negotiating the purchase agreement in the negotiation and execution of the LOI. But the LOI needs to contain enough detail about all of the, the material deal points such that when, when we get six or eight weeks into the deal and the first draft of the purchase agreement comes across, we aren't looking at a document that says one thing when we were expecting it to say something else. So there's a there's a fine line um, in, in negotiating letters of intent. Uh, you gotta have some detailed discussions. If you're the client, you have to have some detailed discussions with your lawyer. Your lawyer should know to ask certain questions about uh, what's gonna happen after the closing and how the deal is gonna be structured. And, and where the document lacks that clarity or add that clarity, in my experience, is most buyers uh, appreciate that. Uh, buyers want a lot of wiggle room, uh, but they typically won't push back if you're not trying to lock them in. You're just trying to add structure. I call it the framing for the picture, right? We're not going to put a complete picture together, but we're at least going to put a complete frame together. And I think that's a good, um, good place to, to end up with an LOI. Yeah. And I think that what we're trying to avoid as we get to the purchase agreement and all of the last minute negotiations that happen there is, well, that's not what we thought. Right. 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 And, you know, and, and the reality of it is, is here's the question. When does the buyer or correction, when does the seller lose their negotiating power, their leverage? 
at, at varying stages along the way. But the first one, as you know, is is right here, where they signed yep. the sell line. Uh, it's it's very hard to go back on a term that was negotiated, and if you are the seller, now buyers are going to do some diligence, so they they can they can reverse their position on some things. But if you're a seller, and, and you have a position that you agree to in an LOI, even though that is a non-binding document, you are not going to be able to go back and change your position on that without a really good reason. And I don't I don't rarely see that all that much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and part of that comes with the art of the deal, which uh, you and the M&A guys are are trusted to, to have some of that art in your in your repertoire. But uh, all right. So now we've done the LOI. They're going through due diligence and now we're starting to get towards a purchase agreement. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about the purchase agreement and how that works and what a seller should expect those couple of weeks you know, to feel <laughs> like. Well, if it's a structured sale, there's an M&A advisor and it's a structured auction, uh, a good M&A advisor will have advised the seller to begin the process or at least uh, inject into the process in its early stages an initial draft of the purchase agreement. Whoever takes the pen first has leverage, okay? In a structured auction, which is one of the reasons why we love structured auctions for our clients, we're, con we're creating competition. We're creating uh, uh, interest among multiple parties, uh, and that, that gives us power and leverage in the deal. And one of the powers that it gives us is the ability to take the first draft of the purchase agreement. We want to be fair in the purchase agreement. We want to be reasonable. We don't want to invite uh, undue criticism for the document. We don't want to make it look like we don't know what we're doing. With that said, within the range of reasonable drafts, we want to be seller friendly, okay? Because whoever takes the pen first has the leverage, right? And in part of the structured auction process may very well be, we would like to see a marked up draft of your purchase agreement so that we can consider that with your indication of interest so that we can determine what kind of deal you guys are going to want to do. And it's a very helpful way of screening your buyer and their counsel uh, before you've chosen who you're, who, who you're going to go down the aisle with. Um, that is the, the structured auction uh, case. And, 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 and even in a structured auction, let's say that the, that the, the, the seller says, this, this is the interested party we're going to go with. We're not going to let the other interested parties know. We're just going to continue to negotiate this purchase agreement in earnest with them with the hopes that we can get a, a deal signed and then we can have a pathway to close from there. Even in that circumstance, regardless of whether you're in a structured auction or you're, you're, you've got an unsolicited offer and the buyer takes the first stab at the purchase agreement, um, the discussions that will come between the parties about the contents of the purchase agreement and the revisions that need to be made to the purchase agreement uh, are, are typically where emotions start to run as uh, run high. Those are our first friction points, right? Again, on the sell side, we think our client's great. We've run them through this process. We've made them look as good as they can. We've offered a fair draft of the purchase agreement and we've got the leverage in the process. They've done a little bit of due diligence 
but they're also crafty and they know how to negotiate better terms for their client. So they might come in and say, well, you know, I know you said you wanted this, but this is actually a more fair and more reasonable approach for doing something like this. And there's not any other buyer in this process with you that's going to give you a better term than what we're asking for here. Um, and, and that's, again, for, for folks that have been enjoying the leverage, that's the first hiccup in the road. Because the seller is going to realize at that point, you, you are in fact going to have to compromise in order to get a deal done, even if you have a lot of leverage in the process. If you are a, a seller in an unsolicited offer context and you receive that first draft of the purchase agreement, the first draft and your comments to the first draft are the most important. It will take anywhere from two to four weeks to get a first draft of the purchase agreement after diligence has begun. If the seller, or excuse me, if the buyer is really motivated and is moving quickly, sometimes the, the buyer will complete all of their financial due diligence before they even begin legal due diligence, before they even begin the production of an initial draft of the purchase agreement. And I want to point out what emotional effect that has on the seller. So we've signed this LOI. It's a big inflection point. We've got a deal. We start this diligence process, we put together a data room, we upload all this information, we, we answer response, uh, uh, their, their supplemental requests, we provide all this additional information, they're combing through our stuff, we're on phone calls and in meetings every day, and then um, eight weeks go by, four to eight weeks go by, and we're still waiting on their final numbers, and we're still waiting on them to introduce us to their legal team. By this point, the seller's already tired. And then they get this document that is on average 60 to 100 pages long. And it says, here's everything we want you to tell us about your business. Whether you think you've told it to us or not yet, we're going to require you to tell it to us again formally here. And quite honestly, a lot of sellers say, why are they asking us to do this? We've already done this. And what I will tell sellers all the time is, you haven't actually done legal due diligence until you've produced and settled the disclosure schedules to the purchase agreement. Disclosure schedules to the purchase agreement can't be put together until an initial draft of the purchase agreement has been offered. The seller's lawyer has gone through the data room, has captioned all the agreements and reviewed everything. Um, this tends to be an, an effort that's tracking in parallel. So you're you're doing sell-side due diligence, you're putting together disclosure schedules, you're also another member of the deal team, the legal team, is negotiating the material terms of the purchase agreement. There's just a lot going on right there, and it begins to feel overwhelming. On the side, and you didn't ask specifically about this, but this is typically happening at this point as well, there is a financial conversation around working capital. Because by this time, the buyer probably knows our working capital better, better than we do. They're attempting to establish the peg or the target. They're offering the methodology by which it's going to be determined and calculated. And that's always going to be in their favor. They want you to estimate your working capital as of closing. They want your peg to be high because they want you to miss your working capital target. So they don't have to overpay for your working capital and maybe even take a little bit off the purchase price at closing. You want to deliver your working capital high so that they'll actually pay you. So you're dealing with three very complex dynamics 
at the same time. And people are speaking a language that you've never heard because you've got legal speak, you've got financial speak, and then you've got just the operations of your business that you're trying to, to manage. So my experience is this is really when we're in the deal. Stuff is happening. It's happening very quickly. It's very stressful. And we might work for a month or six weeks uh, on a purchase agreement to get it done. It's also the case when we're negotiating the purchase agreement that we're negotiating the material ancillary documents, right? Is there going to be a rollover of equity? Are there lease agreements? Are there employment agreements? We don't sign purchase agreements, even if it's a sign now and close later deal, until we've seen the entirety of the deal. We don't want to agree that the purchase agreement is settled only to find out that the employment agreement contains none of the terms that we wanted it to. We negotiate all these things in tandem, and it's a it's a big effort. So I think this is really when um, sellers in particular start to feel the weight of doing the deal. And I think emotions probably are, are running at their at their highest here. This might be the first place where you know the deal falls apart for the first time, right? Like, yep. like you, you're That's right. saying. Yeah, and and this is a place where deals fall apart for good. I yes. mean, I I have a uh, uh, acquaintance who owns an aerospace company, and he came very close to doing a, a do-it-yourself kind of deal. And uh, once he found out how much he had to sign this this major stack of documents, uh, it was just too much for him. He couldn't handle it, and uh, and he ended up backing out of the out of the deal and and continuing to run his company. So one of the things I think that is really important is that we prepare the owner to understand what they are about to go through and that, you know, a purchase agreement sounds like it's maybe a couple of pages, but the reality is that a purchase agreement is a big book of stuff. And it's not something that takes a couple of days, like, you know, closing on your house and you've got an electronic form and you've, you've got protections for you by the state or by the federal authorities about your, your home sale. This is something that can haunt you for a long time and it can cause you to lose money down the road, right? It can invade your personal assets if this is not done properly. Yeah. And maybe you've got a comment on that, Rob. I do. Um, Sadly, so we've, we've set this up such that the seller is in a position where emotionally they're committed. <laughs> there is one option, and that option is to sign a purchase agreement and get a deal done. Uh, walking away from the deal does not feel like an option at this point because they're emotionally committed. The buyer knows that. Um, and it's my experience at this point, again, depending upon the leverage uh, in, in the deal, and depending upon the structure of the deal, if you're in a competitive auction, buyers don't don't tend to have this kind of leverage. But if you're a solo, if you're a seller with a solo buyer, this is where the buyer knows you're tired, knows you just want to get a deal done. And they might ask you to assume a greater amount of liability than a guy like me is going to tell you that you should have to assume in order to get a deal done. And one of the great tactics, tactics of a buyer is to just wait you out. They'll say, hey, we really need you to agree that for the three-year period following the closing, all your reps and warranties are going to survive. And we're going to keep this money over here sitting in an escrow account. And you know, if anything that you've told us is untrue, we have the right to go hit that escrow account, 
for the amount of the damages that, that, that we determine that we suffer as a result of the thing that you said isn't true and it's, it's just customary we got to have it we one of the one of the one of the best phrases i hear all the time from private equity firms is we do this in every deal this is our this is our standard form this is our standard approach we don't have any negotiating room on this particular deal point and i would say i understand that and that, that in a lot of cases can be true uh, but when it's my client i don't care what the other deals are like i i know the risk my client has and what I want for my clients is to have security around the idea that when the money is deposited in their account at closing, if any of that money is subject to reclamation after the closing, they know exactly how much it is, they know exactly how long it's subject to forfeiture, and they know exactly when those forfeiture rights evaporate so that they can move on with their lives. So this thing that we're talking about is post-closing indemnity. It's always hotly negotiated. Most clients don't understand it until we get into it. And even then we get into it, uh, they didn't realize it was such a big thing. But yes, protecting that purchase price after it's paid is a, is a big part of what we have to do, particularly at this stage in the deal. Yeah. All right. So we sound like big gloom and doomers right now with, <laughs> with, <laughs> with doing one of these transactions. Right. And, uh, but look, it, this is blocking and tackling. It, it 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 is it is thing. These are things that just have to be done with every deal to protect you and your family as you go through selling your company. You've you've built this great company. You've got a lot of emotion tied to it. Your whole life maybe was involved in it, and and you don't want to screw it up at the end because you're being penny wise and pound foolish. So. Rob, why don't you give us, you know, we could be talking about this stuff for another two hours. Um, why don't you give us three bullet point recommendations of, hey, you're, you're going to sell your company from a legal perspective. This is how you do it well so you can achieve that elite exit. Like any other aspect of the transaction, you need to start the legal piece early. And it starts with uh, developing a, a relationship with someone whom you can trust to help you through the experience. And you should you should interview folks. You should get multiple recommendations. You should interview, um, and you should find the lawyer that's going to work best for you. Um, once you find that lawyer, you should ask that lawyer to give you a, a, a look at your company in the way that the buyer's lawyer is going to look at that company. You should tell that lawyer, I want you to tell me the truth about how my company looks from a legal perspective, because I would rather hear it from you rather than from them. And I'm going to put my, 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 my thick skin on and I'm ready to receive that. Uh, but, but also, um, I would tell them this. Help me understand this process from start to finish. I want to know the good, bad, and the ugly of everything that we're getting into. I don't want you to shade the truth. One of the reasons why deals are so emotional and why they, the emotional impact of deals has such a negative effect on the seller is because of the idea of surprise. You, you do this very well, Mike. You tell your clients your deals are going to fall apart three different times before you get to closing. If they fall apart once, <laughs> that's a great deal. But if they fall apart three times, the client will say, you told me 
It was going to fall apart three times before it closes. This isn't a surprise to me. I don't like how I feel right now, but you told me this was going to happen. So as a, as a client, that's the kind of stuff that I want to know from my lawyer. I want to know where this thing has the ability to affect me and my business and my family and my team in a way that, that could cause me friction. And I want to understand what that's all about now while I have a clear head and the ability to think about and prepare myself for how I'm going to approach it. I think those are the three things that I would say. Get, get, find a good legal partner, get engaged with them early, get a good look at your company from a legal perspective and, and have that person walk you through the deal start to finish so that you're not surprised for what's about to happen. Yep. Well, Rob, I appreciate your time today. Rob Swartwood with Concilium Legal Services. You can get Rob on the website. You can send him a note and I'm sure that he'll be happy to talk to you about your situation as we are. You can get in touch with us at theowneracademy.com. And if you'd like to chat with us just to ask us some questions you know we're going to add value to that conversation for you so just give us a call and we're happy to give you a couple of tips or tricks and and maybe help you as you're thinking about preparing for your future exit so we the next academy cohort starts in august and that one is filling up fast so if you would like to find out more about that go to theowneracademy.com select the courses page and go to cohort number six for the fall of 2022. It's going to be a great group and you're going to learn all kinds of stuff from Rob because Rob teaches there with us. So um, we've been, we're very grateful for the time that he gives us and uh, we've been very successful together with our clients. So Rob, hey, thanks again. I appreciate you joining us. You got it, buddy. And we will uh, talk again real soon. See y'all next time.